And today we're going to see that the God who is there is the God who legislates. He does not just leave us to ourselves and uh, just say, go uh, figure life out on your own because he knows that we will just uh, make a mess of things. And so out of his love for us, he gives us boundaries and he gives us direction so that we can live uh, life to the full, the, most, the best possible life. And so uh, here's a, um, a sports illustration. Think about trying to play basketball with no rules. Right? You don't have to dribble from uh, here to there. You can grab the ball and just run if you want to. And people can elbow you in the nose and tackle you. And it, that might be fun for a little while, uh, but that would get old quite quickly. In fact, it would ruin the game. Uh, a, trying to play games without rules ruins the game. Trying to do life without rules will ruin your life. And so God, out of his goodness to us, he has established boundaries in which we can live a, a healthy uh, an, ab an abundant life. And that's the purpose of God's laws. Now, with our secular friends, with our non-Christian friends, uh, we largely share the same attitude toward human laws. Everybody, virtually everybody, agrees that for uh, society to be harmonious and for humans to flourish, we need laws in which to regulate how we relate to each other. Uh, but for our, uh, for our secular friends, uh, the only category of law they have is this category called human law. But whereas we as Christians, we, we recognize another category, a higher category, called the law of God. And, and to, uh, to that law, we understand it differently and we relate to it differently and it produces a tremendous difference in our worldview. So first, human law. So with our, with our secular friends, we largely uh, share these views of human law. Number one, they're man-made. Okay, they represent, you know, the best thinking of humans. Number two, they are intended to promote uh, human uh, flourishing. They're intended to promote a harmonious society. For the most part. However, uh, as has been pointed out uh, a lot recently, some laws are unjust. Some laws are made by those in power in order to keep their power and are, are at the expense of those without power. And so they, these are unjust laws. Uh, so uh, just a couple of them. Uh, did you know that uh, women were not allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia until June of 2018? Uh, it was illegal for a woman to drive. Fortunately, that unjust law has been repealed. Also, in South Africa, another example, South Africa, uh, it was illegal for whites to marry non-whites from 1949 until 1985. Uh, so the, the fact is, some laws are unjust, and some laws are um, simply those in power trying to hold on to their power. Uh, number four, human laws are needed because of selfishness. Uh, we won't always think about or act in the best interest of the whole. 
Uh, sometimes we will just act in our own best interests and, or those, of, you know, uh, those that are close to us. And so because of this uh, tendency of some people to be selfish, we need some laws. Number five, human laws uh, only have consequences in this life. So if you break a human law, if you get caught, you get punished. Uh, society is less harmonious, but once you die, there are no lingering consequences. Number six, human laws can be revised. They can be changed. And frankly, sometimes they need to be changed. So that's number seven. We are to obey laws that are just and we are to resist laws that are unjust. And we recognize that human laws are uh, sometimes simply reflect outdated tastes or, um, or, or are unjust and need to be resisted and altered. And then um, finally, sometimes we might conclude that although in general obeying the law is a good thing, in my particular instance, it would not be a good thing. Okay, so with our secular friends, we, you know, as Christians, largely, that's our, that's basically our approach to human law. However, we have, as Christians, we have this whole category of law called God's law. And uh, we think about it differently, we relate to it differently, and it is our uh, belief in this category called God's law that actually uh, gives us a very different worldview and puts us on a di very different playing field altogether when it comes to law. Uh, so let's talk a bit about God's law. And I want to remind you uh, of the story of the giving of the Ten Commandments. And that wasn't the first law that God gave. The first law He gave was, way back in the garden, don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? That was the first law. But in the giving of the Ten Commandments, God makes it uh, unmistakably clear that He has a vision for how we should conduct ourselves. And uh, when, when you are a child of God, He expects you to relate to Him a certain way and He expects you to treat others a certain way. And uh, that is just very clearly uh, displayed in the giving of the Ten Commandments. So last week, we talked about how God called Abraham. Abraham had not done anything to deserve the great call upon his life. In fact, he was an idol worshiper up until the moment God said, leave your people and your country and your gods and come follow me and go where I show you to go. Well, God had promised Abraham I am going to bless you, you'll become a great nation, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So now we're 400 plus years have gone by, and Abraham's descendants are slaves in Egypt, and then God calls Moses and says, go lead, um, set my people free, lead them out of their bondage in, in Egypt, and go to the promised land, I'll, I'll show you where that is and take you there. So they have, uh, the Jewish people now have exited Egypt. God has parted the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army tried to catch them again, but they got destroyed when God brought the Red Sea down upon their heads. And uh, the people of Israel are now in the desert of Sinai, and they're camped in front of Mount Sinai. 
And God calls Moses up onto Mount Sinai, and there he gives Moses the Ten Commandments. The law that he wants his people, uh, the Israelites, to, uh, to obey. And so, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Exodus chapter 20. If you haven't seen the Ten Commandments with Charleston Heston, probably should. It's like a staple of good Christian people in America. <laughs> Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying... I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So Israel had a unique relationship with God. Uh, they, the Israelites were God's chosen people. Uh, they were to be a holy priesthood, uh, showing the rest of the world what it looks like to uh, live in right relationship with God and with each other. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The first four commandments are um, regulating Israel's relationship with God. Um, the final six regulate their relationship with each other, human to human. Number five, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, even after the age of 18. <laughs> Actually, it doesn't say that. Probably means it, though. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. So when God gave his people his law, he accompanied it with this tremendous display of his power. So the, mount, the top of, of Mount Sinai was smoking and there's lightning and fire and uh, and trumpet sounding, and uh, 
think, ponder that. There's a reason God has given his law uh, with, a, with a display of his power. And the people's response is, they're afraid. Verse 19, and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen. Don't let God speak to us lest we die. They see God's power, they're afraid, and they shrink back. They are uh, backing away from a personal relationship with God because they're afraid of his, uh, of his power and his rules. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. So shrinking back from God uh, is not the proper response to his law, even though we know that none of us can obey his law perfectly. Because there's been only one person who has ever completely obeyed the law of God, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. The rest of us are shown to be lawbreakers. And yet, drawing back from God out of a, a sense of shame and failure and fear is not God's desire for us. Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. When I came across this in my 20s, I was perplexed. Wait a second. He just says, don't be afraid. Then he says, God's done this so that you can be afraid. How do we reconcile those, those two things? And I think it's this. God wants us to understand that to be casual with him and to be casual about his uh, laws is foolish and is dangerous. And so God gives this great display of his power so that the people would fear to be casual toward him and would not sin. At the same time, we are not to fear uh, a relationship with the Lord. And God has given us uh, a way to relate to God even as sinners. And of course, that's through faith in God's son, Jesus Christ. We're not righteous, but, but he is. And more, we'll talk more about that. All right, so some things about God's law. Number one, it is the highest authority. When the law of man conflicts with the law of God, we obey God's law. Acts chapter 5, verse 29, uh, the apostles are preaching the gospel. The rulers of the day have forbidden it. Stop preaching in the name of this Jesus. But they do it anyways. And when confronted, Peter says this, verse 29, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men, because God's commands are the highest command. Number two, it is immoral to disobey or revise God's law. Now, even if you're not going to get caught it's wrong. Even if you think to yourself, this isn't hurting anybody. It's just about me. It's wrong. And we can't revise it. Uh, only God has the rights to revise his own law. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 2, Moses tells the people, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Number three, God's law promotes righteousness and justice. That's its purpose. It's to promote right relationship with God and just relationship with each other. And so if it were done on earth as it is in heaven, 
And it will be someday when Christ returns, praise God, come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? When it is done on earth as it is in heaven, righteousness and justice will fill the earth. And our lives will be better. Amen. Jesus tells us that God's law is fulfilled when we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and when we love our neighbor as ourself. He summarized the entire law in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 to 40. I'll start in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, the rest of the Bible... Uh, teases out what loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself look like practically. And we need that practical guidance. In fact, immediately following the Ten Commandments uh, are multiple chapters of case law and uh, talking about what it looks like to live out the final six commandments in in different situations. And, and in, in some sense, that's what the commands of Scripture are about. God is telling us, now this is what it looks like practically to love God and practically to love people in many different situations because left to ourselves, we would often get it wrong. And so left to ourselves, we'd say, you know what? In this situation, it's, the loving thing is for me to lie. In this situation, the loving thing is for me to walk away, right, etc. Well, you know, to love people is to uh, acknowledge and to love God is to acknowledge that there are many paths to God. And as long as you're sincere and, and it's heartfelt, God doesn't care. Well, we would probably come to these conclusions on our own. So God clarifies for us what it looks like to love Him and others practically. Number five, God's law produces abundance in those who keep them. You cannot live life to the full and at the same time be breaking the law of God. You are not experiencing your best possible life if you are at the same time disobeying the Lord. So whatever private sin that you are holding on to and uh, feeding and thinking to yourself, you know what, this is benefiting me, I'm winning, no you're not. That sin is keeping you from, an, uh, from the life God wants you to have. Psalm chapter 119, largest psalm in the Bible, and it's all about the Word of God. And here's just a portion of it, verses 97 to 104. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Can you say that? Does that reflect your heart? 
Does that reflect my heart? I want it to. Can we say all the day, I'm always thinking about it. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. Notice he says, he's not saying, oh, how I love your suggestions. Oh, how I love your, your nice reasoning. It adds to my good thinking. <laughs> he's not saying that. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. So the first three verses, he's talking about how he, that he's thinking about, he's pondering, he knows the word, the law of God. Then he moves on to keeping it. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I don't turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. So he's meditated on them, he knows them, and then he obeys them. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So he has acquired a taste for God's law. Why? Because he's put it into practice and he's come to realize through, uh, through experience that God's laws are for his best. Hey, I didn't, maybe I didn't understand why that was good for me, but now I, now I have experienced it. And then 104, Though, through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. I love the progression. I, I meditate on your word. I, I, I know what it is. Now I obey it. And now I have an appetite for it. And you know what? It has transformed my values and to where I hate every false way. If you want life to the full, then keep the commands of Christ. Obey the law of God. It will not lead you astray. Number six, God's law is needed because of our sinfulness. And because of the deception of the evil one. Who will seek to convince us that actually it's in our best interest to do it our own way. And sometimes that means we've got to disobey God. And left to ourselves, we would not go the right way and do the right thing, and we'd end, up, uh, we'd end up hurting ourselves and other people. And so uh, I quote this scripture a lot, but to me it's a, it's a big verse to me. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. In other words, apart from the law of God, apart from the word of God, I'm going to stumble around in the darkness and fall off cliffs and, and, and hurt myself. So praise God that he cares enough about us that our creator tells us how to live life to the, to the best. Number seven, God's, uh, breaking God's law has consequences both in this world and the next. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what's due, for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. And then finally, the law of God highlights our need of a Savior. And why is that? Because none of us can keep it perfectly. It, it uh, underscores our sinfulness and our need to be saved. Right? So 
in Romans chapter 3, we're reminded that there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one, except Jesus. And when we, when we acknowledge our own sin and our need of our Savior, and we repent of our sins and, put, and turn to Jesus Christ in faith, what happens? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. There's this great exchange where our sin is placed on Jesus Christ and he takes it to the cross and there he lays down his life and pays the penalty that we deserve for our sin and then he hands us his righteousness and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And there is this great exchange. And so he who knew no sin becomes sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Praise Jesus. So, in John chapter 14, 15, Jesus says, He who loves me keeps my commands. He who loves me keeps my commands. What's the link between uh, our love for Jesus and our obedience? I think it's this simple. We obey because we trust Him. If you love Jesus, it's because you have become convinced that He loves you. It become, you have become convinced that he wants your best. I mean, to the point that he laid his life down for you. And so when he says, do this, don't do this, what's the heart behind it? The heart behind it is Jesus wants what's best for us. And so when we love him, it's, not, it, it's rather easy to obey him because we believe that he's the son of God with all wisdom and we believe that his that he loves us, and so he would not tell us to do something or not do something unless it's in our best interest. Some people disobey God because they think, ah, this is just human thinking, uh, dressed up as the Word of God by those in power to further their agenda and make life, you know, make the world look the way they want it to look. Others will say, I don't trust that God has my best interest at heart. That's what Satan convinced Eve of. Ah, you're not going to die. God just doesn't want you to also have uh, knowledge of good and evil. He's holding back what is actually good for you. And so some people look at this and they're like, eh, I don't think God has my best interest at heart. I need to make my own decisions. And then sometimes... I think sometimes even uh, th that we let our, our stomachs, as uh, we're told in Philippians, their God is their stomachs. Sometimes uh, we let our passions and our appetites of the moment overrule. And so we actually believe, I know that I probably should do it God's way, and I know that God's probably right that this isn't good for me, but I want it. And then we go for it. And so... Will we trust and obey? Boy, this has been the theme that keeps surfacing in these 
uh, the last number of sermons. Will we trust God and obey Him? Trust that He has our best interest, that He knows what's best for us, and then and obey Him. Will you trust and obey? And that's a decision you just, uh, we have to make on a regular basis. God, I trust you. God, I will obey you. And I suspect that right now, uh, for many of us, the Spirit of God is, is a neon light flashing a particular area in your life where He's challenging you to trust Him and obey. And do that. Make that choice and step into life to the full. Now, all of us, all of us are lawbreakers. All of us are lawbreakers. What do you do with that? Well, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are told what, what Satan does is he points out our failures and he tries to get us in this uh, death spiral of sorrow, right? Look what you did. You're a bad person. God has no interest in you. Uh, you should just keep doing that and give up. Whereas God, when he points out our failures, it's for one purpose, Repent of that, find forgiveness, get up and, and walk into the life God has for you. And you know what? There is no, no sin that anyone has ever committed that cannot be forgiven and you cannot find restoration from. And as a Christian, this needs to be a regular rhythm of our lives. Right? We confess our sins. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so there's this rhythm of, God, that was wrong. I agree with you. That was wrong. I don't want that in my life. Forgive me and please help me. Next time, I don't want to do that again. Help me. Empower me by your spirit. And, and that needs to be a, a, a rhythm of our life. Now, if you're not a Christian, then uh, the wrath of God rests upon you for your sin but Jesus says, transfer that to me. Let me, who knew no sin, become sin on your behalf, and then you get my righteousness. And that's a, every relationship has a beginning, right? And so if you've not done that, there's a moment in time in which you repent of your sins and you make Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of your life, and then you move forward, having been forgiven and with the right to receive forgiveness from, from Christ ongoing. So let's pray. If you're not a Christian, there aren't any magical words. You just say, God, I am a sinner. I acknowledge that. I have broken your law. Forgive me. And Jesus, I receive your death upon the cross as full and sufficient. And I now my sins. I repent. I put my faith in you. And I now make you the new Lord of my life. Help me to live a life that uh, honors God. If you are a Christian and there is a, an area in your life where you are willfully disobeying God, that choice is hurting you. Repent of it. Confess it to the Lord. Say, God, forgive me. I will stop doing that. And I pray that through today's message, the, the blinders are taken away. And maybe you're a Christian and you are, you just can't get set free from 
the guilt and the shame of breaking God's law in the past. You know what? Have faith. What has God said He would do? You have to believe. And you know what? It's a lack of faith to hold on to your guilt and shame. It's saying, I don't believe God's promises, and I don't believe that Jesus' death is sufficient payment for my sin. That's frankly um, quite arrogant. (laughs) So give it up and receive God's forgiveness and walk in freedom because that's what He wants for all of us. Lord, we receive your law as good. And Lord, we recommit ourselves to walking in obedience because you first loved us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.